Welcome to CII's podcast, The Voice of Corporate Governance. While this podcast is open to the public, the majority of our work is only accessible to current CII member organizations. If you would like information on becoming a member of CII, please visit our website at cii.org or contact our Director of Membership, Melissa Fader, with her email, melissa at cii.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor Michael Klausner, the Nancy and Charles Munger Professor of Business and Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. Last year, Professor Klausner co-authored a research paper entitled A Sober Look at SPACs, based on research from January 2019 through June 2000. The paper found three disconcerting features of special purpose acquisition companies. One, SPAC shares were highly dilutive. Two, the post-merger performance of SPAC shares were quite low. And three, SPAC sponsors' returns were extraordinarily high. Today, we're going to discuss with Professor Klausner a recent update of that seminal paper and a second paper Professor Klausner recently co-authored entitled SPAC governance in need of judicial review. Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate your having me. Professor, what motivated you and your co-authors to update your paper on a sober look at SPACs? Well, there had been some changes uh, in in the past year. The publication process entails a year long lag. And uh, we wanted to see whether the changes that had occurred altered our analysis. So we went into the update with an open mind, collected new data, and did some additional analysis. Um, The other reason that we did this was that the immediate reaction to our paper, which was October of 2020 when we posted it, was that our data is old. It's outdated. That was past news. Now, mind you, this was data that uh, from a sample period that ended only three months prior to the time we were getting this reaction. But that's the reaction we get. We got in October, November, December, um, probably still. So we wanted to test whether that reaction was valid or not. Now, what we now know is that that reaction was happening, or we were getting that reaction as a SPAC bubble was inflating. And that what we were really hearing when people said to us, your data is outdated, was the four most dangerous words in investing. What you often hear in a bubble, this time is different. So again, we did go into it with an open mind and we wanted to see whether this time was different. So Professor, your update discusses, as you indicated, the SPAC bubble. So Can you tell us when did the SPAC bubble begin, when did it end, and what may have caused the bubble? So it began in late 2020 and it ended in spring 2021. You know, as is true in any bubble, you can't really pinpoint a particular date and the particular date doesn't matter. But that's the broad period of the bubble, late 2020 until spring of 2021. So what were the causes? Um, One never knows. Uh, what causes a bubble, or one rarely knows what causes a bubble. And and 
I don't know that I could give a definitive answer to that. But part of the story was there were retail traders, day traders getting involved in investing and trading SPAC shares. One of the stories is they were home because of the pandemic and they had too much time on their hands. Also, there was a lot of hype surrounding some of the high-flying SPACs. So the hype may have been part of this uh, as well. In fact, there may have been an interaction between the hype in the news about a high-flying SPAC and the day traders piling in to those SPACs. And eventually, there was a contagious uh, uh, effect into other SPACs as well. I'm just speculating. But one thing I can tell you is that during the period of our study, I looked at the Robinhood website when at the time you could see what Robinhood clients were buying. And for the most part, prior to the bubble, Robinhood clients were not buying SPAC shares. The only SPAC shares they were buying in any significant numbers and some high numbers were again, the high flying SPACs that were getting a lot of press attention. So, you know, my see of the pants explanation is the interaction between retail traders or day traders having time on their hands and the media hype about SPACs feeding into that, creating a somewhat toxic mix. Professor, has your updated research from June 2020 to today changed your view about whether SPAC IPOs are a good investment for long-term shareholders? In a word, no. Returns to SPAC shareholders remain poor and the structure of SPACs is unchanged. Professor, can you explain for our listeners what you mean when you refer to the structure of SPACs and the fact that that structure has remained unchanged since June of 2020? Sure. Well, SPACs, SPAC shareholders face two primary sources of dilution. These sources of dilution are inherent in the SPAC structure. First, they're the free shares or essentially free shares that the sponsor gets called the promote. Second, there are the free warrants that the IPO investors get at the time of the IPO. In addition, a lot of the cash that shareholders invest in SPACs is extracted by third parties. They're underwriting fees, and then they're quite high financial advisory fees. Those financial advisory fees we're finding are essentially as high as underwriting fees. So those sources of extracted cash are still there in SPACs today, just as they were during the period of, of my study. So since the beginning of 2021, after the original period of my study, we found that each SPAC share that is purportedly worth $10 has on average about $6 of net cash behind it. That's not much cash. It's a little bit more than during our study, but basically it's the same story. So, Professor, can you explain the relationship between the SPAC structure and shareholder returns? Yeah. So if a SPAC has $6 of cash available for each share, it's reasonable to expect that a target will exchange about $6 worth of value for each SPAC share. 
Now, if it does, then the post-merger share price of a SPAC will fall to $6. And what we found empirically over time is that this, in fact, does happen. Now, some SPAC managers may negotiate better deals and get more than $6 of value from the target. Some may add value after the merger, and some may get lucky. But on average, if I invest $6 of cash in a company, I expect to get just $6 of value back. But Professor, has anything really changed with SPACs since your June 2020 research? Yes. One important thing has changed, and that's PIPES, new private investment at the time of the merger. PIPES reduce the dilution that public shareholders face. That is, they share that dilution. And the more that share the dilution, the merrier. It's less dilution per share for each public shareholder. Now, we'll see how long these pipe investments or the pipe market remains present. They've been losing money, generally, uh, and the size of pipes and the frequency of pipes has declined since the SPAC bubble. So we'll have to see whether they continue. If they do continue, that is a positive change uh, for SPACs. If they grow and get very large, that's more of a positive change. So we'll have to see. Professor, as I indicated in my introduction, in addition to the update to a sober look at SPACs, you also recently co-authored a paper entitled SPAC Governance in Need of Judicial Review. Many of our listeners have an interest in corporate governance issues. So what are some of the corporate governance challenges you have observed with SPACs and what impact may those challenges have on SPAC litigation going forward? Well, there's one fundamental challenge, governance challenge for a SPAC, and that is to address the inherent conflict between the sponsor and SPAC shareholders. That conflict is built into the structure of the SPAC. The basic structure of the SPAC yields a situation in which the sponsor makes a lot of money in a merger that is terrible for shareholders, and it loses a lot of money if it fails to merge. So as a governance matter, this puts a lot of pressure on the merger decision, the SPAC's merger decision. What one would expect, and this is Corporate Governance 101, one would expect that SPACs would be structured in a way that protects shareholders. They would put the merger decision in the hands of a truly independent board or a truly independent committee of the board and allow that committee to control the merger decision. Now, in fact, most sponsors do the opposite. They compensate directors so that the director's interests align with sponsors. That is, they give directors shares that are gonna be worth a lot if the SPAC merges and zero if the SPAC fails to merge. Same payoff structure that the sponsor faces. So the incentive for the directors is to find a merger, approve a merger. And that's what they do, 100%. They always find a merger. The only mergers that fail are those where the, the target backs out. Now, in addition, 
Sponsors appoint to their boards directors with close ties to them, financial ties and personal ties. So these directors, for two reasons, are not independent at all, notwithstanding the fact that they're described in proxy statements as being independent directors. They're not independent because their compensation doesn't make them independent and because their personal ties don't make them independent. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about every single SPAC. I'm talking about most SPACs by far with respect to compensation. With respect to the close ties, I think that's not as prevalent, but it still is highly prevalent that there are close ties between SPAC directors and SPAC sponsors. The result is what one would expect. SPACs always propose mergers. They liquidate only when a target backs out. The result of those mergers, as I've said, tend to be quite poor for shareholders. But the sponsors and the directors do extraordinarily well, despite the shareholders doing poorly. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Professor Michael Klausner, Nancy and Charles Munger, Professor of Business and Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.